You're listening to In the Thick of It, a podcast from the HCM Society, where we interview experts in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy field to broaden the awareness of new HCM studies and advancements. In today's episode, cardiologist Dr. Caroline Coates is talking with Dr. James Moon, the CEO of Mycardium AI Limited and a distinguished professor of cardiology at University College London. Dr. Moon's groundbreaking work in cardiac MRI, particularly in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, has changed the way professionals understand and diagnose heart conditions. Today, we're delving into his wealth of knowledge and experience on imaging and HCM. Let's get in the thick of it. Here's Dr. Coates and Dr. Moon. So, hi, James. Thanks very much for uh, joining us today on this podcast. Um, We've known each other a while, and uh, you've taught many, many fellows about cardiac MRI in, in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Can you tell me a little bit about how MRI was when you started and uh, how you've seen it progress? Sure. Well, thank you, Caroline. Um, so cardiac MRI is just a tool to look and peer deeper into how the heart is working for people. And it's 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 a good one because we can see the heart structure and function. But with some of the newer techniques, we can really get an understanding of the intermediate steps that happen in the patient's heart. Um, as you go from that little tiny mutation in one gene through to breathless name. And those insights are are sometimes actionable. So you can do something about it, help make a diagnosis, help uh, uh, tell if somebody has got the disease, if their parents have got, uh, you know, the disease and potentially predict outcomes. And it's not just to predict outcomes, but it's to change those outcomes by linking to appropriate therapy for patients. Yeah, it's amazing how how you can see inside the heart, really, that we couldn't do before. One of the really interesting aspects I know you've focused it on is is how hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is is defined, and we're still defining it by by maximum wall thickness. What have we learned from MRI that perhaps we didn't know from echo? in terms of how the disease should be defined? Yeah, I mean, you know, diseases are labels that we use to help understand and then treat patients. And even the word hypertrophic cardiomyopathy just means thick heart muscle, bad. You know, it's quite a lump all definition and we're entering it there and I think we're going to need to be a bit smarter. So. As we do very often, we just reinvent the diagnoses. Now, wall thickness is a pretty key bit of hokum, but if we then just focus for a moment on the wall thickness, um, that definition that we use of greater than or equal to 15 millimeters without another definition was come up with in 1972, and it's very impersonal. So if you're a large ex-Olympic rower, it's 15 millimetres. Or if you're a small, say, Asian female, it's 15 millimetres. And in the past, when really we were trying to make a diagnosis about ICDs and cascade screening, that was a problem. But it's a much bigger problem now that we have important therapeutic options. So what we've been doing is building a try and say, well, what is normal? Um, a personalized definition of the range of the human heart. And so we've been uh, using AI because it's, and 
these big studies called biobanks where they uh, look at healthy people and defining what's normal. And we find, and this is early data, that in some larger, mainly male, uh, mainly older men, 17 millimeters can be normal. And in some mainly female, sometimes South Asian, for example, uh, women, it could be as low as 11 millimeters. And those are actually quite big differences. So precision therapies, I think, are going to drive a diagnostic era. And the test people like MRI doctors and echo doctors are going to need to have to adapt. And I think it's time. Yeah, absolutely. So um, do you see there being perhaps sex-specific or ethnicity-specific cutoffs for diagnosis and perhaps treatments? I do. Um, again, just using thickness is not how we do it clinically because you think about the family history, the comorbidities, you know, if you're hypertension and, and all these things. But basically, we should move away from 15 millimeters and, and do something more personalized. Now, I've just talked about age, sex and ethnicity, for example, ethnicity is coming. Um, so you can start to think about other things like diabetes and hypertension. It's not going to be perfect and we're not aiming for perfection. That's trap. What you're trying better than what we were doing before. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, the other thing that MRI, you alluded to at the beginning, gives us, um, apart from the structure, is obviously a little bit more about the disease biology. And I, I know there's some very specialist techniques within MRI that can detect not just fibrosis and, and scarring in the heart, but also disarray and perfusion microvascular abnormalities. C can you let us know sort of where the, the research is in that aspect? Yeah, sure. So um, the first thing that we really did to understand the heart muscle at a scale, if you like, is the fibrosis imaging. Um, and measuring fibrosis is really important because Cardiology is thought about the heart in terms of its function as a sort of surrogate for function, the ejection fraction. Um, and hokum is considered to be a disease that is hyperdynamic, and it can be, but very often what all cavity, and therefore you get a high EF. Now, when the EF is impaired in hokum, it's always about scar. I mean, like literally always about scar um, until maybe the era when you're impacting the myosin and the contractile process. So fibrosis is really important. It's really important in every other organ system like the lungs. But fibrosis is probably irreversible. So we need to be picking up the signals of what comes before that. And one of the key ones is likely to be ischemia. And the new techniques with um, MRI in particular are really good at detecting this. And, and how do you do that? Is that, is that for, from a patient perspective, is that something that can be done in your local hospital or is it something that could um, is still in the sort of research setting? So, so the, it, it depends really. Perfusion is quite common in cardiology. We use lots of different techniques. Um, for Hokum with the thick walls, it's really very visible. And we've been using a sort of technique that quantifies the amount of blood flow. And what we're finding is that in some subtypes of Hokum, these perfusion 
completely ubiquitous. 100% of people have them. Um, and that's really exciting because I think it's telling us something very fundamental about how the disease evolves from a mutation sometimes into an over, you know, uh, abnormality of the heart. What obviously, if you think it through, um, if 100% people have got something, then it in itself cannot be the risk predictor because everyone has it. So we're going to have to think about how much uh, ischemia there is and, and maybe it's more likely to predict the fibrosis, for example, that may be the thing that predicts heart failure uh, and new staging of the disease are going to be needed. Yeah. So y- your group produced a really nice paper on on apical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, I- illustrating this this um, universal perfusion defects. D- did you notice, um, so in the apical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy project that, that um, you did, did you notice there was a difference within that cohort in terms of spectrum of risk? Was there any difference with wall thickness or gene status? Yeah, so apical hokum is, there are lots of different sort of variants of hokum and they come in all shapes and sizes and wall thicknesses. But one of the variants stands out and it's this apical variant. And it's more common in some geographications and it's more common in sports people and it has a very characteristic ECG and the gene positivity is lower. It sort of stands out and same the outcomes is more heart failure and strokes, for example. Um, and when we looked at these, um, the first thing to say is that um, the normal apex, the tip of your heart, is thinner than the heart, a bit towards the atria. Um, but we still use the 15 millimeters. So there's a sort of relative apical hokum definition. Um, and the first bit was to show that actually um, the definition of apical hokum really should be about a wall thickness for your body size, and actually age and sex didn't make much difference in the apex. So it's 5.6 millimeter squared in the context of the T-wave inversion that's so characteristic. But when we looked at these, you end up finding that there's a triad of abnormalities. Perfusion defect, that hypertrophy, even if it's only relative, and then the ECG changes. And we had a 100% rate. So I think we're measuring something very fundamental about the disease. Now, if we look a bit deeper, um, some of the patients, when you stress them and you use a drug, adenosine, it's technically a vasodilator, some of the patients, the blood flow to the apex of the heart was lower during stress than even at rest. A very profound sort of ischemia, really. We are beginning to think that that might be the driver of progressive wall thickness and fibrosis. And this was work done by uh, Dr. Rebecca Hughes, and we know some of the scans were about five years ago. So we're going to see if we can predict the pro- prognosis and evolution of hypertrophy by by seeing if we can see the presence at baseline of this ischemia. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, no doubt you've been following the the fields of of treatments that are in the pipeline. <laughs> And some of which, um, so I wonder if we can just talk about those and, and the role of MRI, sure. both in assessing them. So c- can we start with, with the cardiac myosin inhibitors? Um, so we have two drugs, um, Mavacampton and Afacampton. And I know there's little MRI data available yet, but 
What are your thoughts on how the mechanism of cardiac myosin inhibition might affect the structure of the heart and, and the sort of pathways that you can track so, with MRI? Yeah, so the first thing I'd say is that there's something interesting that happens in Hokum because every single in the heart has the mutation and yet you get these characteristic patterns like asymmetric septal hypertrophy um, and it really looks positive feedback loops um, and if you think of the heart in terms of the smallest size you see on an image that we call a vox there might be 50 to 100,000 myocytes in that so when we peer at the heart we're looking a long way away from where that molecular action is and it's my suspicion that we are going to be able to unpick the mechanisms of positive feedback. And at the moment, one of the things I'm suspicious of is that the hypercontractility and sustained contraction into diastole causes a reduction in blood flow and therefore ischemia. And relaxation is quite an active process. And so you get a vicious cycle where contraction results in ischemia, results in more sustained contraction. And it's really exciting to wonder whether these drugs will break that cycle. Mm. And potentially, if ischemia drives the hypertrophy, because remember, hypertrophy is potentially the heart protecting itself from the underlying abnormality. We call it hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because that was the thing we noticed most. But if you look at the original 1958 Donald Tear, paper he's he he focused on small vessel disease and the fibrosis as well as some structural abnormalities like clefts and yet we've thinned that and pruned that into just thick heart so i think uh it's really exciting if these drugs don't just reverse some of the breathlessness and symptoms of the patients but maybe actually could prevent disease progression so maybe uh instead of cascade screening cascade prevention Mm. and could potentially reverse some of the phenotypes like apical hokum. I'd really, really be interested to understand the electrical, mechanical and perfusion interactions and use these drugs as a probe to really understand them. And hopefully with that insight, we'll be able to have the sort of basis for future therapies because I really don't think we're going to end up with a single therapeutic arm you know, uh, approach. Um, and for the first time, we may be now cracking the biology of human hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Yeah, it's really exciting, isn't it? So, um, yeah, so it's identifying that that pre-phenotype stage, which is, is, is going to be the future, isn't it? Um, we know from population, you know, cohort studies of, of gene carriers, if you like, that they don't all go on to develop hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You've done some sort of gene positive, phenotype negative work as well. And do you think MRI might be able to distinguish those two groups, the gene positives that do go on to develop hypertrophy versus the ones that don't? Or do you think that might? Yeah. I, so, so we call it preclinical or or negative, but actually these, what we mean is that they don't have LVH that we can detect, um, but they probably may have myocyte disarray and 
ECG abnormalities and perfusion defects. And I think because the drugs are expensive, we're probably going to have to define a high risk of progression subgroup if we're going to treat these people. And I think MRI might play a role in that. I'm always a fan of using expensive technology to understand better the more universally available technologies. Um, so it may well be that we get better at detecting the signals uh, that the heart gives out that dissolve in the blood, so the biomarkers, panels of biomarkers. Um, and it may also be that we get smarter interpreting the ECG in context of the heart structure. Because, for example, you know, um, we think of the ECG as saying having voltage, LVH, for example, but actually it's very much sometimes it's about the ECG and then what the heart looks like, say the ratio of wall thickness to TRS, for example. Um, not so much in Hokum, but in ARVC and amyloid and things, that's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's brilliant. That's a really good sort of snapshot of, of where we're at um, in terms of the, the cutting edge research. Can I just bring it back a little bit more to, to patients that have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or might be at risk of developing it? Should everyone have an MRI? Is it accessible to everybody in the world? So the first thing is, um, so let, let's, let's take a global perspective. And the answer is advanced diagnostic techniques are available if you don't have any treatment to offer. So, it, you know, having a diagnosis is not just voyeurism. It's, it's important that you can do something about it. I mean, we have a pyramid of sort of tests and we should use the, the cheapest tests first. And so there are certain scenarios where I think the MRI is really helpful. So an example for where um, there's a high pretest probability and the echo is normal and the ECG is abnormal. I think all of those patients should have an MRI because we find in about 50% that they do actually have LVH. So you move them from potential to definite. The second thing is um, the apex. So ECHO has a specific difficulty in the near field looking at the apex. And whilst many um, skilled operators are aware of that, um, not everyone sees nothing but hokum. And actually, MRI can be quite easy there because it's it's pretty straightforward to do MRI. There's another thing about MRI, and that is that we have a tendency, and goes, it's, a lot of us do this, is to make the test complex and do a lot of things. What about T1 mapping and stuff? Actually, you can do a basic volumes and late GAD in 20 minutes anywhere in the world. So we've been doing that in actually lower middle income countries, at least the major state capitals or, um, you know, um, capital cities of lower middle income countries. And, and we've got these faster, cheaper, easier scans. And we're now bringing those back in more advanced and wealthier nations. So for our cardio-oncology, we do 20-minute scans. For ischemia, when it's just coronary artery disease, we do rapid CMR now. And we're getting those scans down to 30 minutes, 20 minutes, for iron overload, even 10 minutes. So sometimes we have to think about what we want and and think about the resource implications and just be focused and not always answer what if they might have this and just get the answers needed. And, and that's especially important for follow-up as well yeah. when you look at interval change. Yeah, exactly. So anything to track track disease or treatment, it's going to need to be 
specific and um yeah you know deliverable i suppose um yeah no that's that's great and the other thing i wanted to ask you about is is about cardiac devices so that's pretty important to people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and again this field i think is really advanced in terms of scanning people that have implantable cardiac devices how does that affect you know your setup and things yeah, so um, the first thing I'm going to say, and I know it's not perfect for this audience, but that if you have a pacemaker or ICD, your lifetime chance of getting an MRI is about 40 times lower. And if you get cancer condition, you really need an MRI sometimes. Now, um, the manufacturers have worked quite hard, and it turns out that pretty much anybody with a device can be scanned. Um, you have to put this device in mode, and you have to sort of be a bit more careful about it and involve the, the physiologists who reprogram the devices. And that needs a cardiology sometimes and physiology collaboration. So it's a little bit more involved from a service delivery, but no one really should be excluded now from having an MRI. Now, if we come to the heart, um, let's just classify the devices into three. So the loop recorders, the pacemakers, and then the larger devices like an implantable cardiac later ICD or the resynchronization devices and um, because they're metal um, you can get some image degradation are what we call metal artifact reduction strategies to get over that and in the sophisticated sensors we can scan any pacemaker or ICD um, but most if not all of the pacemakers ICDs now being put in globally have a mode that allows them to be used in an MRI scanner. Um, so the newer devices like that. Um, we are talking about sort of change management and, and bringing in new techniques and that doesn't always diffuse well, but it's it's sort of coming. The other thing we found is that the leads um, are all MR conditional effectively. Uh, now proving a negative is pretty difficult, but in a collaboration with the UK and the US, uh, of a few thousand patients, we found that the leads are not the problem. It's the what we call the generator, the mm. box with the battery in. Um, but there's a huge able to really do these patients. And just because it's a little bit harder for the service um, doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing those partnerships to get these patients the care they need. Yeah, no, that's it's really it's really good. It means it's accessible, doesn't it, to to everyone now and um and I suppose it's particularly important for people that might have had a cardiac arrest and not had the opportunity to have a cardiac MRI before before their device. Um, so that, I mean, that's a, so secondary prevent, you know, secondary a cardiac arrest is not a diagnosis um, and there may be cascading consequences for the patient themselves or for their family. And yeah, we can do one. In, in that's because the patient's safe we would still probably generally wait six weeks because why not? Mm. And then just let the leads settle down. But absolutely, yeah. I, I think that's a good thing where an MRI can add quite a lot of value. You find things like sarcoid, for example, or ARVC or Hocum, um, even when you weren't expecting it in those sorts of patients. Yeah, no, that's that's great. You're, so you're at uh, the HCMS Society yeah. meeting today james is there i think it's lunch break is it do you is there anything that you have heard or is interesting well from um, i mean 
Yeah, I mean, I was I was listening to some of the sort of barriers uh, and the fact that women seem to be diagnosed later and worries about sex and gender. And I think really some of this is going to be about those 15 millimeter cut point, the one size fits all. What I'm looking forward to most is um, is the networking opportunities. Uh, we're trying to do some of the things we're doing with MRI and then transfer them to ECHO. So I'm going to be meeting some of the key opinion leaders from some of the big centres in a minute. And we're going to talk about collaborative projects. You know, I, I think working across sites is a really good it's not not without its difficulties, but the results and the science you get really generalises much better if you, you know, acquire pictures with lots of different scanners and use lots of different ethnically diverse groups and work with people in different uh, healthcare systems. So there's quite a lot that we're going to be doing together. Um, and a lot of this is driven by the emerging need and the fact that we're thinking again about HOCAM in, the, in this precision therapy era. Yeah, that's great. Brilliant. No, it's brilliant to have the HCMS Society set up now, isn't it? That seems pretty good to me. That was Dr. Caroline Coates and Dr. James Moon. For more information on this study, visit hcmsociety.org slash podcast. This episode was edited and produced by Earfluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon on In the Thick of It.